Years ago, a friend asked me, um, what do you believe that God wants from you? And I gave the answer, obedience. Obedience. Uh, what do you think of that answer? Do you think that's a good answer? What does God want from you, from me? Well, it's a biblical answer. I think that my answer was okay. Uh, it, it certainly can be found in Scripture, but I think that there's a better way to say it. I think there's a better answer. God wants me to love Him. He wants me to love Him. He wants my heart. Uh, not only is love God's greatest commandment, but love is the core of obedience. Which honors your spouse more? Avoiding adultery out of fear of getting caught or covenant love? Obedience to God derives from love for God. Obedience to God derives from love for God. Think about this. Compliance to a set of rules does not presuppose love for the maker of the rules. Love doesn't tend to be the theme on April 15th. Are you tracking me? This week we're returning to the book of John after a three-part series on the Holy Spirit. And I planned that way because in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. So hopefully uh, the past three weeks will be able to inform us all and take us deeper into the context of John 14, 15, and following. And so um, let's understand where we have been in order to inform uh, where we're going. And so we head back into John 14 where Jesus and his disciples, they're in the upper room at the Last Supper. They're enjoying the feast of the Passover and the last moments of Jesus' life. And Jesus has more profound things to say to them. So let's just jump right in. If true love for Jesus exists in your heart, it will be expressed through a lifestyle of joyful obedience to Jesus. Let me say that again. If true love for Jesus exists in your heart, if it's real, if it's really there, that you actually love Jesus, it absolutely will be expressed through a lifestyle of joyful obedience to Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in verse 21, he said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Then in verse 23, he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in verse 24, he stated it in the negative, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Love for Christ is the deep root system, anchoring and feeding the fruit of true obedience to Christ. Love is the root system. We may do a lot of religious activities but without love for Jesus, no matter what we do, it won't be true obedience. It will be dead works. If love is not there, it's just a bunch of dead works. It doesn't matter. First, what is meant by love? I agree with Pastor John Piper who explained it like this, and I think this is a wonderful way to say it. Quote, love for Jesus is pleasurable. It's desiring him because he is infinitely desirable. It's admiring him because he is infinitely admirable. It's treasuring him because he is infinitely valuable. It's enjoying him because he is infinitely enjoyable. It's being satisfied with all that he is because he is infinitely satisfying. It's the reflex of the awakened and newborn human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful embodied in Jesus. 
End of quote. And Piper's next line is so helpful, so please take this to heart and listen closely. He said, in short, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Delight. Delight in Christ drives obedience. Love is more than outward compliance. Love is just more than following the rules. Keeping Christ's commands overflows from satisfaction in Christ himself. Second, what is meant by keeping commandments? Don't miss the obvious. The greatest commandment in Scripture, a summary of the entire law, is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So the first step in commandment keeping begins with love. Love for God. You keep Christ's commandments when you obey his uh, laws precisely because you love him. You don't love Jesus when you protest his rules. You don't love Jesus when you say, oh, no, 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 that's one thing I'm not going to do. Oh, a- anything, Jesus, except this over here, that's mine. That's not loving Jesus. That's rebelling against him. You can't refuse to do his laws if you really love him, if you, if you love Jesus, you fall in line. Verses 15, 21, 23, and 24 all work together to describe this indivisible union between love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus. Obedience is the conductor for the electricity of love. The difference between love and obedience is shown in verses 15 and 23 through what we'll call an if-then clause or the subjunctive with future tense. In other words, if A happens, B will absolutely happen. If A happens, B will absolutely happen. If your team scores more points than your opponent, then you will absolutely win the game. The logic flows. If you genuinely love Jesus, then you will keep his commandments. So if love is truly in your heart, then you will heed the commandments of Christ. And keep in mind that love for God comes from God. Love is sovereign grace. Carefully consider Romans 5.5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our love for God originates from God's love for us. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. He took the initiative to love the unlovable. God initiates love, which is the foundation for all true obedience. So even our obedience flows from sovereign grace. Listen closely to 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. We love. That's why we love, because he first took the initiative to love us. That's sovereign grace. Not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Not try harder. That's God's love coming to us, empowering us to love and obey him. Jesus was confident that genuine love inevitably ends in keeping his commandments. If you love me, you will. 
You will. That's, that's part of it. That's a natural outflow from the heart of loving Christ. You will keep his commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So if you're keeping his commandments and you have love in your heart, it proves that you love him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It is not true obedience if it does not flow from a loving heart. Why do you want to do good things? Why? Why not give all of it up and go live like hell? Why do you want to do good things? Is it to look good in front of others? Is it to put on a a facade so others will think better of you? Is it so that you can feel good about yourself? I'm helping a lot of people out, praise me. Do you do good things in an attempt to convince yourself that at the deepest level you are good? Maybe you do good things because it's your duty and you've been taught to always do your duty so you're going to bear down and you're going to do good things because it's what you're supposed to do. But I hope, my friends, that you recognize that God commands you to delight in Him. And if you don't, you're not truly obeying him. You're not truly doing your duty. And I hope you do good things because you love God and you want to express your love to him through an obedient lifestyle. D.A. Carson wrote, mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for him can do that. And he's exactly right. Duty cannot, you know, generate true, deep obedience to everything that Jesus, only love in the heart for him. I just love Jesus. So now I want to do exactly what he says. Only love can produce obedience. Understand now how this applies to you, and I want you to hear this very clearly. Joyless and duty-driven compliance displeases God. If you're doing a bunch of rules that he put in his book, but you don't love him, it displeases him. You're not obeying him. You're not where you need to be. If you're begrudgingly coming to church, that's not obedience. What does that count for? If you don't love the God that you're going to worship. I mean, if you help people and you serve people, what good is it if you're just doing to boost yourself up and not display that God is supreme over all things? Joyless and duty-driven compliance displeases God. Look at the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Love is more than outward compliance. There is a type of counterfeit obedience that masquerades as true obedience. It's choosing not to steal because you might get caught. It's helping your mom around the house for the purpose of making your lazy sister look bad in front of the family. It's, it's staying faithful to your wife because of the kids. It's serving the homeless to boost your self-esteem. There are ways to outwardly comply with God's commandments without ever adoring Christ in the process. And it's so dangerous because it looks good from the outside when people look at your life. Oh, look at what they're doing. It looks good, but it's so dangerous because it's dead on the inside. 
And God knows that. None of us can fool Him. The gospel is not obey and be moral. That's not the good news. The gospel is God sending His only Son in the flesh who lived in perfect obedience for sinners and died a brutal substitutionary death on the cross in the place of sinners and vanquished death in the grave for sinners so that everyone who believes in Christ esteems Him, treasures Him, loves Him more than sin, is liberated and justified and redeemed by God's grace and therefore compelled by the Spirit's unto radical obedience. We don't want moral people. Does that surprise you coming from the pastor? We don't want moral people. We want redeemed people who admire and adore and adulate Jesus Christ and are therefore eager and happy and desiring to live moral lives for the glory of Jesus Christ alone. That's what we want. That's what the good news is. Here's Jesus, and look what he can do to dead, lifeless sinners to make them alive and live for his glory. That is good news. Not just try harder and be moral. Our primary focus should, be, should not be correcting people's bad behavior. So Christians are not supposed to be the moral police of the world going around telling people, you got to stop this, you've got to stop that, that's no good for you. Because soon enough, people hear, no, 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 no. We need to start with Christ, who is the foundation, who is the big yes of it all, and then the no's make perfect sense in light of who Jesus is. We are gospel people, not the moral police. Are you tracking? Can I get an amen? All right. All right. It's Jesus. He is the point. We don't want to train legalists. We want to see people love Christ. We want lovers of Christ. Is the focus of your life conforming or enjoying? Conforming or enjoying? If your obsession is conformity, if you're one of those, I'm just going to follow the rules, whatever it takes, and that's your obsession you may not actually love Jesus, and that's a really dangerous place to be. But if your obsession is genuinely loving Christ most, if you're just like anything for him, anything for him, then your burning love for him will absolutely fuel this incredible flame of obedience. Don't make conformity your obsession make christ your obsession and from that he'll fuel the obedience the joyful obedience in your life god desires more from you than joyless duty if you love christ you will keep his commandments now where does the power to love come from where does the power to obey come from the holy spirit living in you gives you the necessary and guaranteed power of love and it's the holy spirit in us that compels us to love and obey. Jesus said in verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now we have to draw upon the the last three weeks and if you haven't been here the last three weeks, you can grab them online, listen to them, watch them, but make sure you understand the context of the past three weeks to really make this week sing. Jesus would make a request of his father and the father would undoubtedly accommodate him. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, 
It is to your advantage, he's telling his disciples this, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's a wonderful promise from Jesus. Jesus would begin to intercede for us from the right hand of the Father. And he would send the Holy Spirit to continue his work on earth. It was necessary. It was guaranteed. In verse 16, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another helper. That's an interesting way to say that. Another helper, helper, one who comes alongside and gives supernatural aid, Jesus helps us and the Holy Spirit helps us forever and gives us exactly what we need. One study note said, he, Holy Spirit, will indwell Jesus' followers forever, functioning as Jesus' emissary in his physical absence. Jesus is not here in the flesh. He's there. But the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit is here with us. Jesus still helps But another helper on top of the help that Jesus gives us, a helper of the same essence, is added to the mix in a new way. The Spirit would continue the work of Jesus on earth from inside his followers, from inside the church, his people. Jesus continued in verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, I love that, Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What a powerful statement. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of truth. The one who guides us into truth. But Jesus said that the world is not able to receive that spirit of truth. They they can't get it. Because it cannot, the world cannot see him and it does not know him. There's no relationship With the Holy Spirit, the world does not see and receive the gift of the Spirit because it is in love with sin. It refuses to leave its sin. It's blinded by its sin, so of course it doesn't see Jesus. It doesn't see the Holy Spirit. It doesn't see the gospel as anything unique or special. The world loves sin more than God. Of course, they don't know the Holy Spirit The world has no love for God in them, and they have no desire or power to obey him. So as you look and get frustrated, if you're like me, at the things of the world, you're like, are you even kidding me? Don't expect different. Expect that's what they're going to do. Because guess what? They don't know God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Obedience would be completely foreign for the world because the only way we're going to obey is by the power of the Spirit, and they don't know the Spirit. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, that's without grace, without the Holy Spirit, the natural person in their sinful nature, he says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're stupid. They're full. This is dumb. They're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You need the Holy Spirit to help you make sense of the gospel, or you just won't get it. You won't experience the joy of it. You won't experience the power of it. You'll just be flat and doing your own thing until the Spirit awakens you and gives your heart a great revival. You need the Spirit to experience the love of God but the disciples who loved Christ knew the Spirit. The reason the disciples got it was not because they were better than anybody else. The reason they loved Jesus and followed his commands was because the Spirit was with them and he would be in them. 
Jesus only promised his followers, his followers, uh, the forever abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus only gave his Holy Spirit to those whom he chose to give it. How did the disciples of Jesus know the Holy Spirit? Well, because he dwelled with them and he would be in them. Verse 17. What is Jesus saying? The Holy Spirit had always been with God's people. If you look back through the Old Testament, you'll see the the working of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't silent through history. He wasn't asleep. But now he would be with them in a more significant way. It would change. In fact, he would actually live in the church, live in the followers. Jesus was referring to Pentecost where he and the Father would pour out the Spirit on all nations. Instead of God dwelling in a building, in a tabernacle, in a temple, in a tent, he would dwell within his people in their hearts as a forever abiding divine helper. Now, let's connect John 14 with Galatians 5.22. What does having love of God um, and power of the Holy Spirit in you produce? Paul wrote, but the fruit of the Spirit is Love. Love is a fruit that is produced from the Holy Spirit in your life. Love for Christ is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. In Galatians 5, 24 and 25, Paul makes a strong connection with Jesus in John 14. Listen to what Paul said. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us new spiritual birth, crucifies our flesh with Christ on the cross, produces love in us, and we walk by the Spirit in obedience. That Spirit stuff's got to happen for you to obey, for you to live for Christ. If you love Jesus, if your fleshly desires have really been crucified with Christ, then you will bear the fruit of the Spirit and will keep Christ's commandments as you walk by the Spirit. Do you see the connection between Paul and John and Jesus? The Holy Spirit living in you gives you what you need to love and obey Christ. That's why if people are not obeying Christ... Where is the natural response to go with their relationship with God? They don't know him. Because if you truly know him, it results in following him. I'm not talking perfection. Read your Bibles. It's not perfection. But, but you've got to live for Christ. If you're not living for Christ, just be honest that you don't know Christ. Got to be living for him. He produces fruit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're a true believer and you know him. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He's not left you on your own to try to work it out. The Spirit of God is not dead in Jerusalem church. I would argue the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit is absolutely at work here changing people's lives. That's your pastor's perspective. I don't think I've ever been a part of the Holy Spirit's work like here at Jerusalem Church. It is so exciting, because, and, and it's messy, but it's exciting because God's at work. The Spirit is not dead here. He is alive and active in us to love and obey God. So let's see some life change. Your life needs to change. My life needs to change for the glory of King Jesus. 
Within the past four years ago, Jerusalem Church has experienced much good and necessary change, and there's more coming and there's much more needed. And I hope you can see and I hope you can feel the Holy Spirit's power and grace in that change as he's transforming us into a healthier, more loving, more obedient church. We are experiencing the Holy Spirit together, and I hope that he produces in us even more love and obedience, where we start really turning over every rock of this church saying, that's unhealthy, so we're going to pump in truth and love and grace into that area so that we can love and obey Christ more. And there are lots of those areas that we need to get to, church, together, Following Jesus means climbing mountains which demand direction, strength, and endurance that we don't have apart from the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, we possess the power and help to attempt and accomplish great things for God, impossible things that only God can accomplish through us. The Holy Spirit makes the summit climb possible. Just look at the apostles And what happened after the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost? My goodness. You want some excitement to see the power of the Holy Spirit? Read the book of Acts, and you'll see what the Holy Spirit can do. But you will receive, this is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he was no liar, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. They received that same power, and that, that same power that carried the apostles to be witnesses to the nations, to the to, uh, witnesses to the risen Christ, and carried almost all of them to be martyrs for the faith is the same power that is in you and available to help you change, fight sin, evangelize, get involved with the, the mission of God that so many Christians across the world are just burning to see accomplished, that people would come to know Christ and be discipled and baptized and, and come into worship to the Almighty God. We're not just here to sit. There's urgency here. And if you can't sense that urgency, I'm sorry because the Holy Spirit is working and leading us to engage a culture out there that will burn. And until we start taking taking it seriously that the Holy Spirit is power and love and grace and He can actually transform people's lives and that's why we're all still here. Not just to come in a wooden pew. We're here to get involved in the game and to share Christ and to see people's lives change and to see our lives change. The power to love and obey Christ comes from the Holy Spirit and we need to want to see that Boom, whatever the cost, whatever it does to us, persecution, pain, suffering, and the resurrection of Jesus seals it all. The resurrection of Jesus is the root of a joyfully obedient life. Jesus promised a miracle, verses 18 through 20, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Have any of you seen the movie Dropbox? Anybody seen that movie? One person? It's a documentary about a South Korean pastor named Lee Jung-rak. I haven't watched it yet, but 
the gist is that Pastor Lee noticed that hundreds of unwanted babies were being abandoned in the streets of South Korea, just left for nothing. And, uh, and he wanted to give life. He wanted to do something about this, and, and he wanted to give life and hope to these children. And so he created a little baby box on the street, what they call the drop box, where unwanted babies can be secretly placed, a safe place to be abandoned. And people are using it, folks. And Pastor Lee is saving kids, 20 orphans at least, because it's been a while since I saw the trailer of it, 20 orphans in one small little house, some babies, some young adults, most with uh, pretty bad disabilities. Along with his wife, he pours his love into these kids, into these orphans. They've been abandoned, and he works to honor his commitment to God. And Pastor Lee prayed this to God. This is what he said, God, I will die for these children. He's serious. He's adopted 10 of these kids as his own. Jesus never abandons God's adopted children. He always cares for them. And I'm a little torn as to what verses 18 through 20 mean exactly. It's likely Jesus is talking about either raising from the dead and coming back alive and or ascending to the Father to send His Holy Spirit to live in His disciples. Either way, Jesus promised to come to them. And they would see, but the world would not. His life would be the key to their life. His resurrection would be essential for their love, obedience, and eternal life. His resurrection proved everything. He died. He came back. And 500 believers, or soon-to-be believers, saw him with their eyes alive, raised from the dead. Legitimate eyewitnesses. No YouTube, no Instagram, no evening news Just a crowd of people validating the resurrection of Christ among whom were meticulous biographers and we can read their works on Jesus. Not only is the resurrection the root of our joyfully obedient life now, it is the source of our eternal life as well. Orphans are made for many reasons, but oftentimes because of irresponsibility and neglect. The resurrection secures the legal adoption of God's children and seals them with the Holy Spirit. Through his resurrection, Jesus accomplished what no one else could, life. Life, abundant, full, love-filled, and obedient life. What love he has shown to us. God has, and this is a profound point I want you to see it, God has a particular love for those who love Jesus. God has a particular love for those who love Jesus. Think hard about what Jesus said in verse 21. He said this, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. First, the Father's love is exclusively for those who love Jesus. The Father's love is exclusively for those who love Jesus. His love for his children is unique. His love for his children is exclusive. We saw in verse 16 and 17 that the Holy Spirit is given to those who know him. A relationship there, not to the world who cannot receive him. We saw in verse 19 that the world will not see the resurrected Christ, either physically or spiritually or both, but his disciples would. 
Then in verse 21, the particular love of the Father and Jesus is exclusively given to those who love Jesus. Can you see that in the text? Jesus manifested himself to his disciples in the flesh, and he manifests himself after Pentecost in the gospel through the Spirit. That's particularly loving. Second, it almost appears in verse 29, if you take a look at that, that our love for God is the catalyst of his love for us, that we somehow earn his love, which sounds like merit, not grace. We earn it. And it would be a mistake to read verse 21 and imply that God's love is provisional or conditioned upon our merit or love for Him. But if you take it to mean this, that God initiates love for us first, thereby producing love in us through His grace, and that God thereby rewards us by honoring His covenant to love those who love Him, then we are consistent with Scripture and we see the marvelous grace of it all, and we don't get lost in ourselves and our own works. See, if we love God, it is true that He will love us. If we love God, it is true that He will love us. He made a covenant with us, Exodus 20, verse 6, to show steadfast love to thousands of those who love Him and keep His commandments. To whom does He show steadfast love? Those who love Him and keep His commandments. And this doesn't negate grace or the other passages that we have seen about God loving us first. This is how William Henderson put it, and I really like the way that it is. This is very helpful. But why cannot God's love both precede and follow ours? That is exactly what it does, and that is the beauty of it. First, by preceding our love, it creates in us the eager desire to keep Christ's precepts. Then, by following our love, it rewards us for keeping them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing grace that he gives you his love, pours it into your heart, you respond from that grace, and then he rewards you from the grace that he gave you. It's just grace upon grace upon grace upon favor upon kindness upon generosity from God. This is amazing. This is why I love God. I hope you can say the same. Judas or Thaddeus asked Jesus in verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. And he was thinking, this doesn't really add up, I don't think. You know, if we can see you, how's the world not seeing you? I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, if we love you and see you, why not everyone else? And it's almost as if Jesus doesn't answer him, almost. Jesus said in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence of the Father and the Son in every believer. Not only did Jesus reveal himself after the resurrection, but he sent his Holy Spirit to live in believers. God tabernacles in human hearts. Verse 23 also points beyond the coming of the Holy Spirit to the ultimate fulfillment in the return of Christ. He's coming back when God will dwell with us in the final sense. Both the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the return of Christ to bring eternal life are only for those who love Jesus. It's only for those who love Jesus and obey Him. This is why living for Jesus is so vastly important to you. 
This is why this so applies to every single one of you. Little kids, this applies to you. Listen. Listen to what Jesus is telling you. He's being truthful for you. His return to bring eternal life will come to you if you love and obey Jesus. And, and little kids, you're so precious to us. Please hear this. If in 15 years you don't love, and Je- love Jesus or follow him and you just, pfft, I don't give a rip about him, please think about what that means long term. When Jesus comes back, you want to be ready and be like, Jesus, I, I just want you. And you can want Jesus to come at three years old, four years old, five years old. Please, kids, this is the most important thing in your life. The blessing of the Father's covenant love is clearly a blessing only received and enjoyed by those who have been transformed by the grace of God and therefore love God. Verses 21 and 23. One last short point. Jesus Christ has divine authority to give commands. Because sometimes you might be thinking, yo, man, what are you always telling us to do? Why, Why, Jesus? Why are you telling me what to do? Why don't you get off my back for a change? Verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God speaks powerfully and authoritatively through his Son. Jesus should be telling us what to do. Jesus is kind and loving and benevolent to tell us exactly what to do. We're going to make a mess of our lives, but if Jesus tells us and then gives us the power to love and obey him by his Spirit, oh, what grace. And he's got the authority for him. That's why we were created. God wants you to see that love for him is more than outward conformity. True obedience is joyful obedience, motivated by affection for Jesus. Obedience motivated by anything other than love is not obedience at all. Hopefully, your faith in Christ is not built upon what you are doing right. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, therefore I'm a Christian and in right standing with God. That's danger. I hope that your faith is built upon the infinite worth of Christ and how desperate you are for him. You just need him. Have you given serious thought to why you live the way that you do? Is it because of love for Jesus or because of some external compulsion or fear or motivation? Haven't mission trips so often been driven by the love of travel rather than the love of Christ and evangelism? Haven't marriages so often persevered because of the stigma of divorce or love for children instead of love for Christ and spouse? Haven't people so often told the truth to avoid getting caught in a lie instead of delighting in the truth and in Jesus? See, there is a way to look like you're loving, to look like you're loving and obeying when inwardly you're just a hypocrite and you don't even know God. But you're certainly doing all this stuff for the flashes of the camera and the opinions of others with no love for Jesus in your heart. Jerusalem church needs to be a love-driven church. Cherish Christ, my friends. That's the whole point of all this. Love for Christ. 
Be obsessed with obeying Jesus simply because you're obsessed with Jesus. Study your affections closely. Study your motives of why you do things. And if you find you do things with no love for Christ, keep doing those good things, but repent that you don't have love for Christ and turn to Him in love to trust Him for salvation. Repent of your lack of love for Christ and ask Him to give you love for Him so your obedience can be rooted in love. Love Christ most. And so my point, just just to end here, is not so much to say, let's say you're you're doing some good things like uh, helping out at Crispus Attics. And you go down there and you recognize, I am doing this so that I can look good. One way would be, I'm not going to Crispus Attics anymore because I can't get this right. So I don't want to keep sinning by going to... That's one way, but I think that's the wrong way. Here's the right way. I can't believe I'm feeling that way. Shame on me for doing it for all the other people at Jerusalem Church. And I'm the pastor. And I'm here to make myself look good. But I'm going to Crispus Attics, and I'm going to serve selflessly. But as I'm doing so, I'm going to confess my sin and say, all things for King Jesus. God, give me a heart. Give me a love for you that will just pour out to these people at Crispus Attics. All things for King Jesus. All things for King Jesus. I'm denying myself. I want his glory to be seen. Don't take away that blessing of revealing God's glory. Just repent of what's wrong in your heart. Do you see the difference between those two responses? One shuts down good works. The other one empowers good works unto the glory of God. So let's press on. Let's not just go through the motions, dear church. Let's love Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. You are so precious to us. You are everything. Nothing in our lives is, is worth more than you. Nothing. And your son is so precious to us, you gave him as a gift, and we treasure him. And we treasure him most. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we have affections for other things that get quite strong and take us off track. But God, you always bring us back on track, and we know that we have your grace, we have your love, we have your forgiveness, we have your son. And so we do actually love him most. But we're broken, so I just ask that you give us a certain transparency to be open about our sin with one another, with you. Help us to confess. And God, give us an insatiable appetite for Jesus. Make him our obsession. Give us more love for your son and for you and for your spirit. And I pray, God, that we never, ever, ever go through the motions, but that we live all of life unto your glory to enjoy you and treasure you and bring all glory to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.